if you were to uh, Google some of the most famous speeches in like world history, which I, I did a couple days ago, you would find some pretty predictable things on the list. You would find things like um, FDR's, you know, a, a day that will live in infamy. It's Lincoln's four score and seven years ago. Um, it's Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream. It's Dabo Sweeney's Bring Your Own Guts. It's, you know, those kind of speeches. Um, if you were to think about and we were to make a list of what you think are some of Jesus's most famous words, like his most famous speeches, I can almost, almost guarantee you that 90% of that list would be stuff that we're going to look at this semester in the Sermon on the Mount. Like Matthew 5 through 7 contains some of the, the most famous words of Jesus. Things like the Beatitudes, which we kind of just read tonight, but we'll start to really get into those next week. All of those quotes are famous. Or, or like, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. His famous words on things like anger and lust. You remember, like, tear your eye out and cut your hand off. Those kind of words. Uh, things about divorce and, and loving your enemies. Turn the other cheek. The Lord's Prayer is in the middle uh, of this passage. You know, our Father who art in heaven. Even things like do not be anxious or do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing or lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven or do not judge or ask, seek, knock or even like the golden rule. It's here. Like it's all here contained in these three chapters. These are some of the most famous words in this little section that we often call the Sermon on the Mount. Now, you won't find that specific title in Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, I've learned recently that that title, that phrase, actually came from Augustine in the 4th century. So that's not like Matthew's term or Jesus' term for what's happening here. Um, Augustine was the one that said it. So, but, so why did he call it a Sermon on the Mount? Well, you know, it, it appears to be a sermon. Um, Location-wise, he was on a mountain. Therefore, the great Augustine put it together, and here we have the Sermon on the Mount. That's where the name comes from. But actually, I think both of those things are really important. So what, what we're going to talk about just tonight is like, what is this mountain? <laughs> and, and what's the message on the mountain? So if you're into outlines, here's mine, if I can remember how it goes. It's like the mountain of the message and the, the message from the mountain. That's where we're going with this, just for a couple of quick points. So the mountain of the message. The reason I want to start in chapter 4 is because it really helps us to see the context of this passage, um, even the context for, like, the mountain. We read in the beginning chapters of Matthew things like Jesus' birth and his, his early childhood and then his baptism. And then in chapter 4, Jesus really starts to get into his ministry. And there's the temptation in the wilderness passage followed by the calling of his disciples. And then at the end of chapter 4, we come to uh, what we read tonight, which is... Jesus going throughout this region of Galilee. Now, let me just say a couple of things about Galilee. Uh, this was a sort of a very densely populated area in, in the ancient Near East. Something like 300,000 people would be in this region spread across something like 20 small villages. Okay. So like a lot of people here in this area. And so Jesus is going around in this region at some point in his early ministry, and he's doing three, primarily three things that the passage said he was doing. He's preaching, and he's teaching, and he's healing. And so he's doing this, and the fame of Jesus 
uh, is spreading all throughout this region. People are talking about him, and people are coming to him, and, and the crowds are building, and, and, and people. some people are in awe, and they want more of this Jesus. And then others are like super offended by him and, and what he has to say, and, they're, and they're, um, they're, they feel threatened by what Jesus is doing. And then at the very end of chapter 4, something really strange happens. It, it said the crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So now his fame is spreading to these other areas. I know we don't know all these areas, but this is like saying, I don't know, like Seneca and Anderson and also Georgia and also up to North Carolina. And it's like these people are starting to come to find Jesus. And so what does he do? He sees the crowds. And it says, and he went up on a mountain and he sat down and his disciples came with him. Jesus purposefully withdrew from the crowds in this moment to be with his disciples because he wanted to teach them something. All these people coming to see what this Jesus is doing and he left them and he climbed up on a hill. Much like this one, I don't know if we make, you know, any parallels, but this is why I requested that we meet outside tonight, um, so we could have the the visual of the the hill. But I, I do want you to have have that in mind because mountains are actually a really big deal to Jesus. It's kind of interesting. Mountains are a big deal to Jesus. Um, you thought you like were the original hype man for mountains, taking your pictures in pretty place, but turns out mountains have been a big deal for a long time. Uh, Jesus loved mountains. Listen, listen to some examples. He was tempted on a mountain. He often taught on mountains. He was transfigured on a mountain. He was crucified on a mountain. And then at the very end of Matthew, he ascended to heaven from a mountain. So Jesus' whole ministry is up and down these mountains. Mountains were a big deal. And so now he goes up to this mountain, and what did he do? Matthew said that he sat down with his disciples, and he opened his mouth and he taught them. Those are important words. He sat down. Uh, This is something that like Jewish rabbis would do with their pupils. They would sit and teach, not like standing at lecterns or whatever. They would sit and be with them and and teach them. And this phrase about he opened his mouth um, apparently is like a Jewish idiom where it's, it's like he's, he's purposefully opening his mouth because he has something important to say. We, we kind of use the opposite of that idiom, like that guy won't shut his mouth. Okay, it's the opposite of that. Like he's purposefully opening his mouth to, to say something, to teach, because he has something very important to say. So what did he have to say? What's the message from the mountain? Obviously, that's what we're going to be studying all semester. Uh, we're going to be going sort of verse by verse at this point. But um, let me just sort of set up a couple of things, and then we'll end some scholars believe, I just think this is really interesting, some scholars believe that, um, that this wasn't necessarily like one actual sermon, but uh, because if it was just like one particular sermon at one particular time, then it would only be like 15 minutes, um, you know, for Jesus to go through. And we all know Jesus preaches 28 to 32 minutes because that's the sweet spot. So that's what some scholars argue. They're like, well, this isn't just like one particular sermon, but maybe this is like a summary um, of what Jesus was doing and teaching his disciples during this particular time in their lives. Uh, almost like a summer class, like a summer course, and Jesus is the professor, and he's, and he's teaching them what he wants them to know during that time. He covers the big topics 
That's one possible view. Others argue that this was one message, but it's one that he taught over and over again. Um, this is like his main thing that he's always talking about, all of these different things, and he brings them up over and over again, which makes sense because that seems how Matthew presents this as like one particular uh, sermon. And Luke also picks up a lot of the same stuff. If you read Luke, you'll find a very similar sermon. It's often referred to as the Sermon on the Plains instead of the Sermon on the Mountain. That's like P-L-A-N-E. No, that's airplane. P-L-A-I-N, not airplane. Anyway, the, the point is like whether it was a one-time sermon or like big regular themes that he talked about all the time, what we do know is that this was something that was very important to Jesus and a message that he really wanted his people to hear. It was something he wanted his people to understand then, and we could certainly say it's something that he wants his people to understand now. These are very important themes. The way I want us to think about what the Sermon on the Mount is this semester um, is this is a family conversation that Jesus is having with his people, with his disciples. You ever have those family conversations? You may have had one during the break. You know the one where you get home and like within five minutes, your dad's like, we need to talk. And you're like, oh no. And I don't know what your family conversations are. It could be like your grades. It could be your boyfriend. It could be your spring break plans or, you know, why are you getting that COVID kind of stuff? Like, I don't know what your family conversations are, but you know what I'm talking about? Those like moments where like, hey, we need to talk. And it's something important that you kind of got to get on the table. It may be a hard conversation. Um, it may be about expectations. You may need to address important things that are, that are vital to your family. And, and then in the, in the end, you hug it out, right? That's what, that's what you do, right? No? Okay, we can talk about it. We need to talk about it. We can talk about your relationship with your dad. Okay, so this is, <laughs> this is Jesus' family conversation. And he's drawing people in. And he says, we need to talk about something. And so he's going to set expectations. He's going, to, he's going to set like rules for what it means to be a part of his family. I like to think of it as like uh, the British monarchy. I don't know what it's like to be a part of the royal family. It's been a while. I, I don't know. Um, I'm sure whether you like it or not, there are expectations for you. Things that you have to do and say and the way you have to carry yourself. This is part of why Harry and Meghan had their issues with the royal family. I know this because we, we text. We have a little text group. And they've really been struggling over the last couple of years. And uh, I, don't, I don't know what the deal is, but obviously there are expectations and traditions that they didn't want to follow. I have no idea what I'm talking about. When I've, not, I've not even seen the crown. Like, I don't know anything about the royal family. But that's what I think about is like, there's, cumber, you know what I'm saying? Like within family structures, there's just things that you know that are expectations. And so here's what I, here's what I do know. Jesus is holding a family conversation because there are vital like realities and truths that, that he needs his people to know and to believe and to practice um, how they are to how, how like his words are to inform for them how they're to treat one another, how they are to view the world around them, how they're to respond to him, how they behave and conduct themselves, how they worship, how they fight, how they repent, how they love, how they reconcile how they're to live their lives in a world that is so anti-everything that he's about to say. The, the world around them wants nothing to do with what he has to say in this message, and, and the same is, is true for us. Um, people actually get really uncomfortable 
with some of Jesus' words in this message. And I'm going to go ahead and uh, let us know that there will be times where we will be very uncomfortable too with what Jesus has to say for us. Um, At times you may feel like he's asking too much. He's meddling. At other times you may feel like, "Mm, I've heard all this before. And actually I think, I want to go ahead and caution us, there's sort of two big ditches to avoid when we're hearing these words. Here's, here's the two ditches I think we really need to avoid. Ditch number one over here is the ditch of spiritual arrogance. Uh, this is the problem of like the Pharisees and other people that Jesus uh, calls out regularly throughout the Gospels. Their problem is that they believed that they really fulfilled all of God's expectations perfectly. Those are the, I've heard all this before people. I know it. I heard it. I went to a Christian school. I get it. I know the catechisms. And so they actually get really super defensive if they're corrected. Really, really defensive. Um, And often their prayer life is really shallow. And they lack real depth. And they lack grace toward others. And they're very arrogant of their self-importance before God. And they're faking it. They have it all together. Why do they need Jesus or other people? That's ditch number one, the ditch of spiritual arrogance. Ditch number two is the ditch of spiritual apathy. This is the ditch that is like, this just feels like too much. I don't feel like it. Um, Do I I really, like, do I really have to love my enemy? Isn't that a bit much? Is, Is anger really as bad as murder? Is lust really as harmful as adultery? Do I really need to sacrifice for others or stop judging others or examine myself first? If we drift toward this ditch, what we will do is we will choose to lower the bar of what Jesus is asking so that we can just sort of feel better, better about ourselves or, or at least we'll stop trying altogether. And that's fine, you know, he'll, he'll forgive me. Um, and we pay little attention to the weight of Jesus' words or, or we don't take them seriously at all. And so how do we avoid these two ditches, the ditch of spiritual arrogance or the, the ditch of spiritual apathy? Well, I think when, when Jesus opens his mouth, we need to like open our ears and we need to open our hearts and to really begin to take in what he's saying. When he sits down to teach, we need to listen and to begin applying his words to our lives. And so no matter where you are spiritually, and I know there's a whole spectrum here. Um, some maybe who, who would say you do not, you do not believe in Jesus and, and maybe you're interested spiritually or, or maybe you're not. Maybe you've been really wounded uh, by Christians and, and you're, you're giving this RUF thing a shot because a friend invited you. Or, or maybe you've been walking with Jesus for, you, you can't remember a time where you weren't, but you feel really distant from him right now. Or, or really you're thriving in your relationship with God, this message will be a litmus test for all of us. It, it will show us where we are in our relationship with Jesus. Do we take his words seriously? Do we really love him? Do we really want to hear what he has to say? That's the weight of this message that's coming for us. In some ways, there's nothing new in this sermon at all, yet in other ways, it's like everything about it is new. Here's what I mean, and, and we'll, we'll end with this picture. This message on this mountain points us back to another message for God's people on another mountain 
some, I don't know, 1,500 years before this one. If you're familiar with the stories of the Old Testament, um, and it's okay if you're not, you, you may remember that after God's people had been delivered from bondage in Egypt, this is a really important marker in the Old Testament and in the history of God's people, when they had been literally brought out of slavery, their leader, Moses, comes to a mountain. And he goes up on the mountain. And he comes down from the mountain with words from God. Ten words. That's what the commandments mean. Is These are God's words for his people. And when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments in his hand, this is what he said to the people of God. I, I want to read a couple verses from, this is Deuteronomy chapter 5. He says, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today, and you shall learn from them and be careful to do them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us. And he goes on to say, God said to us, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first one. And he goes on and names several other commandments, other famous words, right? I think one of the things that's so interesting about this and something we often forget about the commandments or the rules of God for his people is the context in which those rules were delivered. What did he say? He says, remember, Israel, who I am and what I've done for you. I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery. I delivered you miraculously, rescued you from your oppressors. Now, you shall have no other gods before. The whole of the Ten Commandments is relational at its core. It is attached to a relationship with God. And he's revealing what it is to be in a relationship and to continue to relate to him and love him in the way that he expects. It's a family conversation. God is telling his people, never forget what I've done for you. And it should affect everything in your life. It should affect how you live, how you talk, how you treat one another, how you work in this world, how you serve, how you show grace, how you love. And so what does that message on that mountain have to do with this message on this mountain In many ways, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is a continuation of a family conversation that's been going on for thousands of years. The same God that delivered his people out of Israel has come to deliver his people once again. And now Jesus comes, and he comes to this mountain, and he's telling his people, and we are told through the Scripture now, look what God has done for us through this messenger. And now let's live our lives in response. And so for us, if if you're a Christian here tonight, you need to know that the very thing that keeps you from spiritual arrogance and spiritual apathy is gospel-driven humility. A, A humility that says, I could never do all that God has commanded of me on my own. But Jesus has done it on my behalf. And because Jesus has fulfilled the law on my behalf and has substituted himself in my place, what I can do is obey. You see how it's like a circle in that way. 
I can never do it and Jesus has done it and I've accepted that and I love that and now I want to do it and I want to honor him, but I can't, but I'm going to keep going back to him and I, and I can't and I'm going to keep going back to him and I want to serve him and love him the ways that he says. That is what gospel-driven humility looks like and the very thing that protects us from arrogance and from apathy to see what God has done for us in Christ. And so if we're honest, uh, we need these words. Um, We need direction right now. We need correction. Um, We need instruction. And I don't know where that lands for you, but but I know it does. Because some of you are facing a season where you just don't, you don't know. Like you don't know the future. You're really struggling with a particular relationship. You're struggling with a decision. Some of you seniors are looking at graduation and you're like, what is on the other side of that? Um, We need help. We need words to give us hope. Words that help us to know what it looks like to serve him in college, what to do about that relationship, how to find friendship in the middle of distancing, how to stay safe and also sane in the middle of COVID how to serve others in this season, how to deal with specific sins or struggles or depression or anxiety or addiction, whatever it is, we're all looking for guidance. We all need help. And now Jesus climbs a mountain and he sits down and he opens his mouth. Will we listen? Here's the point. Jesus is the new and final Moses who climbs this new mountain for the new people of God. He comes with a new and final law, which is really just a fulfillment of the old one. And he comes to this new mountain to make you a new person. A person who can't say, I've heard all this before. But who says, tell me more. And a person who doesn't say, I don't care what you have to say. But I want to listen. A person who's not only heard the preacher, but who has submitted their life to him because this is a family conversation and Jesus invites you to sit with him and let your lives be shaped by his better words for us this semester and always by his grace and for our good. That is our invitation from Jesus tonight. Would you pray with me?